we have Jesus again in the shadow of the cross. In this context, we have what we might call the model prayer. And Jesus, in the shadow of the cross, prays to the Father. There are a number of things that are on His mind, one of which, as you would well guess, would be the cross. And so, as we look at this text tonight, we're just going to maybe hit the highlights, but as we look at John chapter 17 tonight, there's some things that I think grow out of a study of chapter 17 regarding the prayer of Jesus. And so first and foremost, I would call your attention to the fact that He directed His prayer upward. Note if you would in verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up His eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son also may glorify You, as You've given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as You have given Him. First, Jesus acknowledges the hour of the cross. Listen again to what He said. Father, the hour has come. Now you remember earlier in His ministry, going back to chapter 12, Jesus would say, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But then, here's the response. But for this purpose have I come into the world. Everything has been building literally since Genesis chapter 3. Following the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the introduction to the promised seed in chapter 3 verse 15, everything has been pointing to the coming of Christ and His death on Calvary. And now, here we are. And in effect, Jesus is saying, it's time. For three, three and a half years, Jesus has been preaching and teaching. He has performed the miraculous, authenticating His claims of deity. And now His earthly ministry is drawing to a close. And so, He speaks of the hour of the cross. And I think about the purpose of the cross. Jesus would say in His earthly ministry, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. You remember in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life as a ransom for the many. The Lord Jesus fully understood the reason for His coming into this world, didn't He? You remember, for example, the golden text back in John three sixteen, passage we noted earlier in our studies, where Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He went on to say, God sent not the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So the purpose of the cross and then the power of the cross. For 2,000 years, People have been preaching and teaching and talking about the cross, haven't they? Prior to Jesus going to Calvary, the prophets of old pointed to the coming of the Messiah and God's redemptive plan. And so when you begin to consider the cross and its significance, what about its power? 
Go back to John chapter 12. Again, Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people unto myself. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said on one occasion, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, he said, It is the power of God. The cross is still drawing people, isn't it? The drawing power of the cross, people understanding that Christ died for our sins. He was buried, raised again the third day. And so there is the acknowledgement of the hour of the cross, but then also Jesus acknowledged the hope of the cross. Now, pick up with me again. Jesus said in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The hope of the cross is realized, number one, Jesus Christ is the means whereby we have fellowship with God, isn't it? Listen again to Jesus. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. There is only one sovereign God, isn't there? Now, there are three distinct personalities in the Godhead. They work in unison with one another. They had their divine purposes in the redemptive plan. Jesus' prayer here is that people might come to an intimate knowledge of the Father. And throughout His earthly ministry, He had been talking about the Father and the fact that He came to do the will of the Father. That was His thrust in life, to redeem the human family. There are a lot of folks in the world today, they want to have fellowship with God, but they don't understand Jesus is the means by which that hope is realized. Listen to Jesus in John 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the exclusive way to fellowship with the Father. Not only do we have hope for fellowship with the Father through Jesus, but there is hope for forgiveness through Jesus, isn't there? Note again what Jesus said. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Without the shed blood of Christ, there would be no remission. Matter of fact, the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. All of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed ultimately to the sacrifice made on Calvary by Jesus. The Lord Jesus shed His blood in death for us. You remember the Passover. When Jesus instituted the memorial feast, and we call it the Lord's Supper. Matthew said in Matthew's account in chapter 26 that Jesus took the cup and said, This is the cup of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus paid the price for the sinfulness of the human family. And so we have hope today to be forgiven. And really, when you look at the cross, and you think about one of the monumental statements made by Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Christian system is about forgiveness of sins, isn't it? And on Pentecost Day, Peter and the other apostles announced the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. And by that I simply mean they announced the terms of forgiveness from sin. And the Hebrew writer makes it abundantly clear that under the covenant 
that we live under today, that God will forgive any and all sin, according to Hebrews chapter 8 at verse 12. And so again, as Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, there's a second thing I want to share with you in our study. First, we talk about Jesus directed His prayer upward. But then secondly, He directed His prayer inward. Note if you would, in verse 4, Jesus speaks of His accomplishment on behalf of the Father. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I mentioned a moment ago the purpose for Jesus coming into the world. And the Bible talks a lot about the submission of the Lamb of God. That is, His submission to God's eternal will. God needed a Redeemer, didn't He? And the Hebrew writer tells us, quoting the psalmist of old, that Jesus responded to that summons. Because He said, I have come, in the volume of the book it's written to me, to do your will, O God. Quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. So Jesus came in submission to the will of the Father, God the Father being the architect of the redemptive plan, Jesus being the agent by which that plan would be consummated. So go back to chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My work is to do the will of Him who sent me, to finish His work in John 6, verse 38. We hear Jesus saying, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus, very mindful of the fact that He came to fulfill the will of God the Father. So with that in mind, it shouldn't be hard to understand why in the shadow of the cross He would say to the Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And again, later on the cross, Jesus would say, it is finished. And then three days later, the Lord Jesus would be raised from the dead, as you well know. So He was the submissive Lamb of God, but also the sacrificial Lamb of God. Go back again and look at John chapter 1. You remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus from afar on one occasion? And he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus came to be the sacrifice for the sinfulness of humanity. The Lord Jesus Christ was both the one who sacrificed and He was the sacrifice, wasn't He? And so the Lord Jesus Christ was that sinless Lamb of God that went to Calvary and paid the price for our sins. Now, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 said that we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 said that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. So Jesus tasted death, as the Hebrew writer said in chapter 2, verse 9, for every man. That's inclusive, isn't it? You know, we talk about Christianity and the hope of the Christian system. Salvation is exclusively in Christ, isn't it? 
Only those who are in Christ will be saved. It is an exclusive message and it is inclusive from the vantage point God wants all men to be saved. God has, God's decree, God's desire is that the human family as a whole enjoy the benefits and the blessings of salvation. Sadly, not everyone will avail himself or herself of salvation. The Bible tells us God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Truth sets us free. And in John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So God's word rings forth. The truth continues to ring forth. So with that in mind, we look at what Jesus had to say in verse 4. But now look at verse 5 if you would. In verse 5, Jesus speaks assuredly of one day being with the Father again. Now look at verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Now, interestingly here, we have insight into the deity of Christ, don't we? He speaks of His pre-existent state. Listen again. And now, O Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Have you ever spent some time just contemplating what Jesus gave up to come to earth? The glory that He left. The fact that he had been with the Father throughout all of eternity. And here is the second member of the Godhead willing to divest himself of some of his divine attributes to come to planet earth. You remember the Apostle Paul in writing to the church at Philippi said, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And then he said, being made in the likeness of men, and being made in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto, the, unto death, yes, even the death of the cross. Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven to come to earth to die for us. Now back in John chapter 1, John introduces us to the eternal Word, the Logos. And he said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus is now pointing to the fact that He will soon depart and be with the Father once more. Matter of fact, He would be raised from the dead. And then 40, 40 days later, He would ascend to heaven, be seated at the right hand of the Father, where He welds all authority. Listen, if you would, to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul said, You've heard of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He were, that though he were rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might be made rich. So here's the Lord Jesus willing to come to earth to die for the sins of the human family, to leave the glories of heaven and the blessings of being associated with the Father from time eternal and come to live among men and be crucified by His own creation. 
but he did it with purpose. Now, there's a third thing I want to share with you in our study. Drop down, if you would, and look at verse 20. We talk about Jesus' prayer. First, it was directed upward. Secondly, it was directed inward. Thirdly, it is directed outward. Listen now to what Jesus says down in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I am them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. First and foremost, to understand the Lord Jesus in His prayer, in the shadow of the cross, is praying for unity. His desire is that those who would become His disciples, that they would stand as one, that there be unity among all who believe in His name. And He sets forth the pattern for that unity. I mean, you think about the Lord Jesus here praying, and He's praying that those who would become His disciples and follow in His footsteps that they would be united in word and deed. And so, what better way to illustrate the importance of unity and the pattern for unity than describing the relationship, the intimate relationship that He and the Father enjoyed from time eternal. So, with that in mind, listen again to what Jesus said. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I am them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as I have loved you. Did you note Jesus there praying for oneness and the perfect unity between Father and Son? So here's the question. Is there a platform wherein unity can be achieved? I think Jesus gives us the formula Jesus said, Neither for these alone do I pray, but for all them that believe on me through their word. Whose word? The apostles' words. In other words, the means by which God's people can be perfectly united in word and deed is by following the apostles' doctrine. Think for a minute about what Luke said in Acts chapter 2. Now you remember the apostles had been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew 18, 18. And so they set forth the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. Some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on that day, and the Bible says the Lord added to them. But then in verse 42, 
Luke said of those early disciples that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In other words, they were following divine legislation, weren't they? They were adhering to the doctrine of Christ, that is, divine legislation. So, look around in the religious world at large. The unity for which Jesus prayed has been sadly marred down through time, hasn't it? It wasn't long after the first century church was established that men began to depart from that ancient pattern delivered unto the apostles. And so you had apostasy that occurred within the organizational structure of the Lord's church. And so over time it proliferated into Catholicism and then later denominationalism, neither of which are found in the Apostles' Doctrine. Jesus is praying for unity. And He's saying that the platform wherein unity can be achieved among all who believe in Him is by following this book. The reason we don't have unity in the religious world today is because we're not all speaking the same thing. We're not all following the Apostles' doctrine. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul addressed the division that existed among the brethren there? His plea was that they would all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among them. And then he said that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Is it possible for us to fulfill the will of the Lord as he prayed in the shadow of the cross? The answer is yes. But the only way to do that is to get back to what the Bible teaches. Listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. You remember in Acts 17 when the Bereans were commended because they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so? When you look at the disunity and disharmony that exist in the religious world, the reason is because we haven't investigated what the Bible teaches and then honored that by and large. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul said to the church at Philippi, in about verse 16, let us walk by the same rule. Is it possible for us to follow the same pattern? Yes. But not if we're going to accept this catechism and this denominational handbook or this manual of faith. No, we've got to go back to what? Scripture. We've got to go back and ask the question, what do the Scriptures say? What's the Bible say? Look at, look at how far off, religiously speaking, the world has gotten in terms of quote-unquote doctrine. I mean, you've got, organi organizationally speaking, you've got hundreds, if not thousands, of different churches wearing different names, teaching different things, do, you, do we really think that the Lord is pleased with that? 
I mean, the religious world at large to say that division is good is an affront to the very name of Christ. It really is. Jesus said the goal is unity among all who would believe on Him. Can we teach the same thing about the one church? Yes, we can. Can we teach the same thing about the organizational structure of the one church? Yes, we can. Can we teach the same thing about how to become a child of God? Again, the answer is yes. Can we teach the same thing about the work of the church? Yes. What about the worship of the church? Again, the answer is yes. So how then are we going to decide how to worship, how to work in the kingdom, how to become a child of God, what church to belong to? The only way I know is go back to this book called the Bible. That's it. There is no other way. But when we begin to accept the teaching, the doctrines and commandments of men, then we have problems, don't we? That's why we have problems today. Because people have elevated the doctrines and commandments of men over what the Bible teaches. And whenever you have that, let me tell you what, you're going to have division. And the, and the idea that division is good, listen, that is foreign to the teaching of the Lord. You remember in John chapter 10, in verse 16, Jesus said, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. He said, them I also must bring, and they will hear my voice. And he said, there will be one flock and one shepherd. The one flock is the church, the body of Christ. The one shepherd is Jesus, who is the head of the church. To hear his voice is to hear the apostles' doctrine, to follow that. So if we do that, then what's going to happen? We'll be united, won't we? perfectly joined together the same mind and the same judgment. That's unity. So as you think about Jesus praying in the shadow of the cross, to understand that He would go to Gethsemane and in the Garden of Gethsemane pour out His heart to the Father about the way to the cross. You know, John chapter 17 really lends insight into the way to the cross that lay before Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross to appreciate the fact that He went for you and me. The Lord Jesus bore our cross. It wasn't His cross, it was our cross. That's why Paul said, Him who knew no sin, He became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And as Peter said in the long ago, Jesus suffered once for sins, the just, for the unjust, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. He would say that He bore our sins in His body on the cross. Jesus vicariously suffered and died for you and for me. And without His death, we would have no hope. Jesus would say in John chapter 10, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Do you have an abundant life? The Lord Jesus offers that tonight. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, our encouragement to you, come to Christ. Believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Repenting of all your sins, confessing His name before others, and then being immersed in water 
whereby God will add you to the church, His body, and He's promised to save that body, Ephesians 5, 23. If you're here tonight, and for whatever reason, you're not what you ought to be as a child of God, maybe you're no longer faithful and you need the prayers of the church, listen, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. And the beauty of that is that you can leave here tonight confident that all is well with your soul. Won't you come as we stand and sing?